Hi everyone, you're listening to Accents Podcast on WUKY. I'm your host, Katerina Stoikova, and with me is poet Barbara Sable. Hi Barbara, how are you? I'm well, thank you. I'm so glad to be here. A bit of background to our listeners. Barbara and I met at Spalding MFA in, was it 2007 or 2008? 2007. 2007. So we started on the same day. And during that first week together, she told me that she wants to write a book of poems about the about the Jonestown flood. And today I'm holding in my hand this book. Congratulations, Barbara. What a journey. Thank you so much. Yeah, so it's been a long journey. I, I'm so glad to have the book finally out. And it really did take from what seems like yesterday, 2007, until now to really be able to write a book um, that requires that so much so research. Much- and um, and so much uh, detailed attention and um, and uh, and chops, frankly. I mean, to really, I think I really needed to hone my writing skills in order to be able to write this kind of a book. So I'm glad it's finally arrived, and um, I'm delighted to be here to talk about it. Before we dive into it, I was wondering if you can say a few things about the art of waiting. Because you said that I needed this, this, and this. And for all these components, you need to wait. And waiting is an art, isn't it? It is. It it definitely is. And with writing, I think that you have to, the writer really has to respect the subject, the magnitude of it, or the intimacy of it, or whatever the subject needs. Um, And in this case, um, I attempted to write... Uh, poems about the Johnstown flood. Oh my gosh, you know, back in the aughts, <laughs> way back when. And I really wasn't ready. And I, I was willing to wait because I knew it was a, a big subject. And on that point too, I think that that people are so anxious. Writers can be so anxious and myself once included to when you write something to get it out there in the world and and, and share it and have it published. And and I think that a piece of writing really requires um, time to, you know, marinate, to um, requires a second, third, fourth look to refine it, to, to really understand what the poem is trying to say versus what you are trying to say. And I think that that is something that, um, that needs to be more uh, a part of the, of a writer's um what a writer brings to a writing task is that kind of patience to go back and visit, revisit, and make sure that it's really what the piece of writing, poetry or whatever, wants to say and needs to say. So it takes your ego out of it a little bit. Let's go back to the subject of the book. I would want you to talk about it. And also, this is one of those... uh, poetry books, and I don't know too many of them that have foreword in it. So speak, please, about the decision to include the forewords to this book, the need for it. Uh, Well, the foreword was added probably in the umpteenth revision. This went through many, many iterations. 
And I felt that um, it was important to uh, to express what my stake in the material is. You know, why, why am I writing about this flood that happened in the late 1800s? What is my stake in it? And what are the details? There's so many narrative layers that inform this book that I think that it needed a little bit of like laying out, okay, here's here's the, the time, here's the landscape, here's the socioeconomic situation. There's so many layers and I think it needed to be presented so that the reader is oriented. When they go into the book, they understand the causes of the flood, um, the aftermath, um, and then also the, the poet's stake in the material. I think the forward really, uh, I think, um, sets the stage in a way that was needed. And I didn't realize that until I had done, you know, a, a number of drafts and that became clear. To be precise about the number of drafts, you quoted the number umpteenth. That is a number <laughs> that many of our listeners can right. relate to. We'll say something about your personal stake in this material. Well, my personal stake is that um, I'm from Johnstown, Pennsylvania. So it's a story that's always been with me. Um, and some of the settings, many of the settings I have walked, I've been there, I've been in those in those buildings and the, the, the Grandview Cemetery, which is where several of the most important poems, the first and the last take place, is the cemetery where my people are buried. So I've been there many times and I've walked to the plot of the unknown drown, the the those who were unidentified victims many times. And I've just been so moved and really kind of, um, over the years it has really built in me um, a, a desire to delve more deeply into the story. My question is, did your understanding of the flood change or evolved in any way after you kept on learning more and more and we'll talk in specifics about the uh, research. Yes, definitely. And and the most, I think the the most important part of that was finding uh, through the National Park Service the morgue book and being able to look through the morgue book with gloves on my hands and supervision by the park ranger and read about the devastation, the personal devastation. So each victim had a morgue entry and that morgue entry was on a little tag that was put on the coffin so that people could identify their loved ones. But the uh, it, it was um, very moving and really um, emotional. And it still is emotional when I talk about it. Um, the descriptions of the dead were horrific. Sometimes it was just a foot. Sometimes it was a body that you couldn't even identify the gender and the children, you know, and all the details. And so my understanding of the personal devastation of the flood really deepened with the research. And that was that was the critical part that that made me realize I must write this book and I'm writing it for the historical um, significance of it and also for those whose voices um, who were never identified. They were coffined without a name. That to me is so heartbreaking. Um, so I think that that reading that morgue book and understanding that 
one third of the victims, and there were over 2,000, one third were never identified. So they have blank tombstones uh, in the plot of the unknown drown. And I just, that, that was so emotionally compelling to me that that was the bit of it that really launched me into this project. And you dedicated this book, dedicated to every last lost voice. Yeah. I would love to hear about the organization of the book and the structure. Okay, thanks for that question. Yeah, that, yeah. that also went through many revisions. Um, and it's it's structured because it's a docu-lyric, so it's a lyric about a historical event with historical figures. It's it's laid out chronologically, which really makes the most sense because with this kind of, when you're writing about history, the reader has to be able to understand what happened when. So I have a period of before the flood, 18, it starts in 1888, um, and then... And then the events that led up to the flood and then the devastation of the flood, the aftermath. And then the last of the four sections is renewal, is building back. We've got Clara Barton reporting from the field, like what has happened, you know, what has been rebuilt and revitalized. Um, so that, that the four sections follow the chronology and the, um, the events prior to the flood and all the way through to reconstruction basically of the town. And then also another element of that is that this is all persona with the exception of the poet speaker who, and this is the, my last revision, uh, was based on feedback I got from a manuscript consultant who said, what's your stake in this? Why are you writing this book? And I thought, well, the poet, the I, uh, poet speaker needs to be part of this to, you know, just like the forward to establish my stake in the material. So each section begins with a poem from current day from the poet speaker's point of view. And it also begins with the voice of the water. And, and I, I really love this voice of the water who could care less. The water is indifferent. It's an element of nature over which we have no control over the weather, the water, you know, all the elements. And I think that that is something that will is was true then will always be true and something that we have to reconcile. Uh, you think your life is humming along just fine. And then, you know, in this case, you know, weather conditions and the breakage of a dam and, and the town is wiped out completely in within 45 minutes. What was it like to write all these persona poems oh. and, and to couple them with uh, this epigraphs and speak about the epigraphs. I want our listeners to hear them from you. Okay. Well, what it was like is is really heartbreaking. Yeah. I just and I'm moved just even talking about it. And I tried. I did a reading, and gosh, it was really hard not to choke up. So the epigraphs are excerpts from the Morg book. Uh, so, for example, well, I can read one if that's more illustrative. I can read. Um, uh, let's see, The Carpenter. So a morgue entry in the morgue book, this is just an excerpted from it. Male, age 45, height 6 feet, very powerful man, sandy hair, bullet head, massive jaws, on his right arm, a tattoo of a ballet dancer with a tambourine in her hand, knees calloused as though he worked at measuring. 
expression indicated na uh, Irish nativity. Uh, I'm sorry, Irish, yeah, nativity. Um, so from this, I got a carpenter. His knees are calloused. His foot, it, there are hobnail impressions in his feet. Um, and he's a big guy, very muscled. And so he became a carpenter. So I, it's, it's fact and it's also invention. So I invented people. And this is an unidentified victim. I invented this person um, and many more based on uh, what the morgue entry uh, detailed. So the scullery maid, my, the person who became my scullery maid, had rough hands. Uh, the morgue entry said it looks like she worked about a stove. She was a large woman. Um, so um, those kind of details helped me create or invent figures who had been ident unidentified. And I tried to sort of like raise them up from that anonymous grave and give them um, give them a life through the poem. I've known you for a long time, Barbara. Yes, you, yes. You are a sensitive person who tears up easily and um, feels deeply. I mean, I was reading this book and I was thinking of you just as much as everybody oh. else that I was writing. What was that it like? Me. What was it like to immerse yourself into the gory details of death and destruction? Very, very difficult. And it's interesting that you ask that question, Katerina, because there were some elements of this flood that I simply could not write about. One of which was um, there was a stone bridge uh, in the main river, it's Kanama River, that where all the debris that came down in the in the wave from from the flood, there was a broken dam. All the debris came down and it all got backed up at the stone bridge. So you've got this huge, you know, what ended up being a bonfire, all these, you know, a stove and furniture and a rooftop and windows and Lord knows what and barbed wire from a barbed wire factory and a cook stove fell into the river and it had, of course, gas and the river caught on fire. And people had been rushed down into the river from the, the wave that came. And they, it was a cauldron. Mm. People burned to death. Horrible, horrible. And then, you know, the witnesses, I had access to a lot of artifacts. Uh, one, you know, with letters and so forth. And people heard the screams of the people. And I mean, I don't even want to, I don't want to horrify your listeners, but I could not include this. It was just too awful. Um, or some of the more descriptions were parts of children that were just, you know, pieces of people and so horrible that I just, um, I'm losing track of the question you asked me, but <clears throat> what was it like? Oh, it was horrific. It was yeah. horrific. Yes. Did you have dreams related to the book? Did it inf infiltrate your dreams? No, I always have water dreams. Um, um, I'm always dreaming about swimming or wanting to swim or being in a, you know, big pool of water, being in the ocean. So I'm, I'm, I'm very water oriented in my imagination and in my dream life, but, but not about this. I'm glad, and I'm glad I didn't because they would have been nightmares. The only way I could write about the really horrible things were through epistolary poems 
where there was um, in one on the 10th anniversary, there was an, an interview. Of course, I created the, the farmer and the end of the interview who taught who was, whose job in the recovery was to pull bodies out of the river that had been caught in that horrible fire by the stone bridge. And then he describes it and he has to keep on meandering off into another topic because it's hard for him to talk about even 10 years later. So I do go into some to that, um, that part of the flood story through an epistolary. What has the reception been for this book? Oh, it's been great. It's it's wonderful. And I'm so touched. You know, people, a lot of people from where I live in Ohio, in Akron, a lot of people are from Pennsylvania. And a lot of people know about the Johnstown flood from being from that part of the of the country or having heard about it. So it touches a lot of people because of their own knowledge of that history or um, their I have friends whose, you know, great, great, great something or other was, you know, in the flood or knew someone who was part of the flood. Um, so uh, there's a lot of personal history that goes with this, too. And then I think that this being a docu-lyric, it's different from a typical poetry book that I would have written or many that I would read. So I think it's interesting to read history or to learn about history, even if you're not familiar with the event, through a series of poems. Um, I think it makes it very accessible. And it also, um, you have this big, big event, you know, with many, many narrative layers, but then with the poems, you can highlight particular people, particular moments. So it becomes really personal. There's a, uh, E.L. Doctor has this great quote that, you know, um, a writer or historian can write about what happened, but a poet will tell you or novelist will tell you how it felt. Yeah. So I think that that, um, that has appealed to the readers that I've spoken to or who have given me feedback is that um, it, it goes to a personal level of what it felt like to be part of that event. Ultimately, that's what we remember, what we felt. Right, right. Absolutely. Yeah. Now I'm hoping that you would read for us a little bit. Would you like to read us at least one or two poems from each section? Oh my gosh, sure. Let me start with the uh, opening poem. And the, the setting is Grandview Cemetery where the plot of the unknown drown is. And it's, it's really quite striking. And I've been there many times, so um, this feels very personal. At the plot of the unknowns. Epigraph is, one of every three bodies found after the Johnstown flood was never identified. I belong to a family of grave tenders. We arrive with grass shears, watering cans, season upon season. A seashell placed on a neighboring stone, small plastic farm animal on the next say, you are not forgotten. After tamping the annuals, I kneel back. Conjure my mother, if there is an after, I hope she is pleased with these small gestures. The day is radiant. Mica and quartz glisten monuments along the path to the plot of the unknown drown, whose identical marble stones rise from the ground in narrow rows like sheaves of some strange crop. Their blank faces marked only by weather names writ in water. 
dressmaker, scullery maid, drifter, carpenter, millwright, mother, the children whose dreams scatter in the grass, you are not forgotten. I lean my full weight on one stone, knowing in my own bones there is a story here, and under the next and the next. The earth begins to warm, an elusive wood thrush flutes, crocuses open to the light. So that sets the stage for where the unknown drown are, are buried. And it is a very haunting place. Um, I will read um, uh, one of my favorite little characters, who of course is an unknown drown, uh, who I call the stargazer. And his uh, morgue um, entry reads, male, age 14, light complexion, regular features, short gray knee breeches, large aquiline nose, blue eyes, fine, intelligent, and pleasing looking, no shoes or stockings. The studs of Orion's belt, bright enough this clear, cold night to trace, connecting the stars from buckle to sword, the nebulae midway down, a misty globe of young stars right at the tip of my finger. At tonight's library lecture, the image of a 60 minute exposure imagine, showed stars too faint to be seen from Earth, light years away. The, the lecturer said, light years. In that moment, my chair lost its hold on the floorboards, everything in the hall blurred, and I felt lifted up and out of my own skin, spun like a human nebula. I can't even describe the feeling, but walking home, I was still a little wobbly, like that time I stole a couple swigs from Pop's bottle. Pop tells me to get my head out of the clouds, set my sights on the steel industry, building railroads, cities. The possibilities, he keeps saying, are endless. What ignites me could not be farther from what he goes on about. His life's given over to what's dug from the earth, iron ore and coal lodged beneath these mountains. But far up, above the chimneys and smokestack fumes, whirling like chalk dust, are whole entire worlds. We don't even know. Endless worlds. And just a note about this, Johnstown, um, not so much now, but then was a booming industrial city. And this is in the Gilded Age, you know, in the progress in steel production and all of that is, is really booming. The railroads are, are um, you know, tying the one end of the country to the other side of the country. And Johnstown is really, really, um, you know, happening city in terms of industry. So all these migrants come in and everyone is invested in the steel and coal industry, except for my little stargazer. And that was, um, he's writing from before the flood. But this is, of course, what's um, hard to sometimes fathom is this is a voice from beyond the grave writing about a time before the flood when he was still alive and what he thought his possibilities were in life. Um, in the next section, let me read 
keeping an eye on the river. Um, and this is right before the flood, right before the flood. And this is uh, the telegrapher, Emma Ehrenfeld, who was a real person who did survive. But the telegraphers along the railway, which was of course along the river, were really the ones responsible for getting the message through so that the town could be warned. Okay. Keeping an eye on the river. Epigraph, Emma Ehrenfeld, telegrapher, South Fork Depot, May 31st, 1889, which is when the flood happened. The river's already swollen at 7 a.m. when I climb the depot tower stairs, drenched as a river rat. The same showers that soothe me to sleep turned fierce. A downpour the railroad men said they'd never seen the likes of. Engine 1165 idles on the south siding. No going on with washouts on the tracks east and west of South Fork. Conductor and his engineer pace in and out of my office, awaiting dispatch orders, watching the weather, the rising river, nearly out of its banks by noon. I tend to my sounder, anxious for a clear circuit, the familiar clicks, and keep the brewer on the flame, strong black coffee by the potful. Not one of us mentions the dam, its flaws, the likelihood of a breach. Discourse enough, the drumming rain, the back and forth thumping of gumboots. So Emma Ehrenfeld appears three times throughout the book, right before the flood, when the flood happens, and then afterwards. So she's, um, just for continuity, uh, she's one of the key characters, as is John Hess, who was the engineer who saved the day by tying down the whistle and warning everybody. Um, and then Clara Barton, one of my favorite characters. Let me read um, A Pool of Tears. This is um, a book that references Alice in Wonderland. And part of my research was making sure that any book, any author, any event that, that or piece of art or music that it all was relevant in the late 1800s, just for authenticity. And the research really does create that, that sense of authenticity. So in this one, uh, it references Alice in Wonderland, and that was a very popular book in the late 1800s. And the morgue entry, this is called A Pool of Tears, the morgue entry, female, age 10 years, blue cambric dress, woolen skirt, woolen stockings, button shoes, dark hair. So that's how they saw the body. And then there's an epigraph also from Alice in Wonderland. And this is Alice speaking. I wish I hadn't cried so much, said Alice, as she swam about trying to find her way out. I shall be punished for it now, I suppose, by being drowned in my own tears. Only a very small wrong, I thought, unraveling the bobbins in mother's sewing basket, but the threads were pretty, spread across the floor, and in all this awful rain, the colors so cheerful. After my scolding, I must have cried myself to sleep, and now weighed down the stairs, hungry for a snack, but wonder if I may still be in my bed, only dreaming that water is filling my shoes, rising to my knees soaking my skirts with each step down into the parlor. 
but I must be awake, for the water is so cold and mucky, and I'm shivering, calling for mother. Has she floated away? Surely she would never leave without me. I've swept, I'm swept into the parlor where all sorts of odd things float about. A stew pot and pictures and chairs, and now down the hallway, the upright comes thumping a waterlogged tune, followed by the bench spilling sheet music. Oh, it's all too dreadful. It seems my tears have flooded the house, and now the water is rising clear to my chin. I must be treading. I must keep treading, but my arms are so tired. Here's a chair leg I hold on to until father comes home. But how will he ever get in? And now a swell has carried me through to the pantry where rhubarb and oranges go bobbing. Maybe our house has tumbled into the sea. If I could just reach the biscuit tin, I might grow bigger and see my feet again. Look, there's the shore and a dodo holding out my thimble in his strange bird hand, and beside him mother with her sewing basket, beckoning. So there are characters from Alice in there. I'll read The Carpenter. This is the one I mentioned earlier in the morgue entry, which I read earlier, the male age 45 and so on, um, his knees calloused um, and his feet have the impressions of hobnails of boots in them. The Carpenter. My life was hoist, measure, pound, making houses sturdy as myself. Houses for the big bugs along Washington Street, the jewelers and bankers, nothing but the best for that breed. Braced framing, concrete slab, walls plumb as plumb is plumb. So much a body reveals, my roughed up knees read measure, feet bare and pocked announced hobnail shoes. Those shoes swallowed up by the flux and filth, my jaw square as a four-walled room. Beale figured it right. My hands were indeed a fighter's. Any man, hey, I could thump him flat as a thick shank nail. But this torrent, a royal of saw logs, brick, axles, cattle, and swine, Christ almighty, the whole hillside come down upon us like all wrath. They found me wedged in a stone foundation of a house I set right. For all my mass, I was no match for that water's brawn. It's gnarled fist. I also played with um, form here. So there's a, a ballad, there's erasure, there's cento, there's a golden shovel, triolet. Um, so this was a, a good opportunity to, um, to really bring some form in and to structure the, the voices that I'm trying to uh, express. And this is the Ballad of the Makeshift Morgue. Um, and the epigraph is the Millville Schoolhouse turned morgue, one of the few buildings remaining on its foundation after the flood. Uh, very few were. And, and all the morgues were makeshift. I mean, there were over 2,000 bodies. And they, you know, they, the, the town was not equipped for that kind of uh, volume of corpses. Um, so this is a schoolhouse that became a morgue. And this is in the voice of the person who's in charge of the morgue. 
Dear lady, pass this way with me. Step carefully down the rows of coffined victims, some maimed or burnt. Shh, only his face will show. We'll read the tag on each box lid, which tells what may distinguish your husband from another chap. Old scar, a ring, a mustache. Now bear in mind that might be all to signify the person who lies within a rough pine box. What's left past recognition. This school once hummed with minds abrim, John Keats and Long Division. Still on the chalkboard rests the dust of rhyme scheme, decimal precision. Now bodies stretch across the desks, at peace or fair disfigured, swept down river, pried from debris, townsfolk fixed in rigor. Benumbed by such a scene, take heart. Just say what clothes, what weight, for I'm the one who lays them out. I'll know your man by sight. Just now you blanch by this next box, so cruel, your utmost fear. Poor woman, take my handkerchief. Let's get you some fresh air. So that was probably, from what I've read, um, a typical kind of event of someone going through the morgue, passing through rows of coffined victims, trying to find their loved one. And I'll read uh, one that also has to do with the morgue and the experience uh, in the morgue, in this case of someone who's dead in the morgue. Um, uh, and the it's, it's called The Errant Husband. Uh, and the morgue entry was male, age 45, weight 180, height 5 feet 10 inches, white bunch of keys, a dollar 13 loose, white bone handled knife. Morgue entries often said what they had in pockets or um, jewelry and so forth. So the errant husband. I shouldn't have left you home by yourself, water in the street. Nearly reaching our kitchen window, the gaslight sputtering, but darling, so little money and end of the month, rent, the gas bill, our anniversary. You must understand, third turn, an extra shift, and you still dreaming. If only I'd known the mill would send us home, every last man back home, and I, God, in my unnerved state, Stopped by the saloon, just one whiskey to steady me, just the one. Then there was old Hooper outside calling, help me get this horse hitched. That horse suddenly a swirl in the flooded street, jackknifing Hoop's buggy all a frenzy. Caught beneath those buggy wheels, it had nothing to do with the drink. All the wreckage in the water knocked me under, and now... Your measured footfall near this shoddy casket that you somehow survived and now come looking for me in this godforsaken place, a schoolhouse defiled and children coffined here too. In spite of all my folly, you come beyond bearing. Even in this nether state, pass me by now, dear Anna. Or they could not loosen the grimace from my face. You'll never know the last word on my lips was your name. Ah, 
forgive me. This that's one of the ones that really gets to me. That that's the, the voice of the person lying there in the morgue, and then his wife looking down at him, and he's been so um, truly errant. Um, and the last poem is in the voice of someone who is also invented, um, but who was in the book the whole way through. She was in utero at the very beginning of the book, um, and she was born the night of the flood, or I'm making her a she, the baby is she. Um, and then, and the so at the the last poem is the 50th anniversary of the flood, the commemoration, and she returns um, for the commemoration. It's called I Washed Into the World. It also takes us back to Grandview Cemetery. I washed into the world on the sodden mattress that floated my pregnant mother into the second story window of Alma Hall. In the pitch blackness of that shivering night, I am told the contractions came on full force. Her screams of pain likely drowned out by the shouts and sobs of 200 some terrified and injured in that same room by the wind's sharp howl, the incessant crash and splinter of buildings, bodies, God knows what outside. Standing here now in front of Alma Hall, I gaze up to the second floor watermark, the elliptical arches like raised eyebrows and conjure some primal memory of being delivered from one floating world into another by a doctor with three broken ribs while 18 feet of water sloshed at the sill. I am told that the Presbyterian church steeple split the wave in two, sending the wall of water to either side of the hall, sparing all but one of those sheltered inside. Over the years, I have pieced together what I've been told about that night of my birth, when a flood leveled the city of Johnstown, a patchwork of story and surmise. On my 50th birthday, I returned to see the lanterns lit along the stone bridge, to visit the ground where my ancestral home folded into itself like an envelope. I have come to visit the plot of the unknown drown at Grandview Cemetery and run my hand along the arc of every blank stone. The end. Thank you so much, Barbara. Oh, I was also going to say, it's been my pleasure. And I haven't had very much experience reading these poems aloud, especially to anyone else. So I'm going to have to check the emotion of it because they really, they really do, um, they get right to my gut. Well, not only the poetry is remarkable, but also the physical book itself is beautifully executed. Talk about the cover and the illustrations. Thank you so much. Well, the, the publisher is Alternating Current Press, and one of their imprints is historical um, writing, fiction and poetry. Um, and they did a really marvelous job accommodating what I wanted was to have a map of the flood in the book. So you, when you open it, you can see the map. And it's, it's from the 1800s. So it's, you know, it's from that time. Um, and it's very accurate, and it gives you also an orients you to the path of the flood. And then the cover, um, I had to fight for that one because so I wanted something that that integrated the map of the flood and then also had the blues 
which I always think is beautiful for a, a, a cover of poetry book. Um, and I really appreciate um, how she, my publisher, Leah Engstrom, how she um, put the, the blurbs in the back and then also a description of the book in the back. So when you pick it up, you really can, you know what you're, what you're holding in your hands. Um, so, but, so thank you for that. Yeah, I'm really pleased with the cover and the artwork. And then she also did this really cool thing of putting like water sprinkles in the pages between the sections. And so you really feel kind of like inundated, you know, visually and also with the poems. Oh, the details are important. And you yeah. have taken care of the details through research and writing and the publisher did their part by taking care of the details of the physical body of the book. Well done. Thank you so much, Katerina. I appreciate that. What are you working on now? Oh, now I'm working on, I also write short form uh, Japanese poetry. So um, haiku, tonka, and haibun is my latest passion. Um, so haibun, for those of you who are not familiar with that, is the pairing of prose and either um, haiku or tonka. For haibun, it's uh, it's haiku and, and for Tonka, it's called Tonka Prose. So I'm working on a chapbook of uh, Haibun, which is, I think, a, a truly elegant form because you've got the expansion in the prose and then you've got this wonderful compression in the either haiku or Tonka that accompanies it. So I think it's, it's a really an elegant, lovely, balanced form of poetry. Would you kindly read us a couple? Sure. I will read you one that um, recently uh, got an honor from the Haiku Society of America called Kintsugi. Um, and this is a haibun with two haiku. And for those of you who aren't familiar with that term, it's you know when something is broken like a ceramic vase, it's mended with uh, gold or some precious metal and like silver. Um, so it's a it's a new it's a new piece of art, Kintsugi. Wide open at 13, it was a year of blood, of trying to fit into a bewildering body. On the doorstep of summer break, I was itching for freedom. As I pulled on my wool uniform, thoughts of sleeping late, running wild till the streetlights came on, until the news of Bobby's death rang from the transistor on my dresser. I fell back onto the bed as our house plunged off its foundation. I refused to go to school. Diagrams and fractions suddenly meaningless. Catechism more than ever flat wrote. I had had my schoolgirl crushes, my disappointments. This was a different kind of heartbreak, a rip in the seam of the world I was just getting to know. Bird bone flute, the hollow sound wind makes. What I remembered about his brother's assassination five years earlier was that it made my impassive mother cry for days. Then the never ending funeral procession on television. Otherwise, my childhood world remained intact. That was the same year my uncle fell from a ladder and lay for the rest of his days 
staring at the ceiling in the veterans' hospital. But mom still put dinner on the table every day. Dad kept going to his job at the mill, and I would learn how to find a common denominator that bound together fractured things. Lightning split red bud, and yet blossoms. And of course, that's Bobby Kennedy's assassination, I'm sure. And I'll read one more. Okay, this is called Quarry. And there's a haiku at the beginning and a haiku at the end. Hideaway and the Attic Eaves, reading Lolita. The old quarry turned swimming hole was an oasis on hot southern afternoons. My girlfriends and I would bushwhack through the thick brush of ungroomed woods a good two miles in, then would come upon it, a crater-sized bowl filled with bottle green water, the texture of wet velvet, the temperature like cooled bath water, a sharp mineral scent swamped our senses. Young women with unabashed bodies, we'd strip down to nothing but skin and cannonball into the cool slur. Our glee echoed in the piney air. No doubt the quarry was also a haven for cold-blooded life. The idea of swimming with a smartly banded snake only added to the dangerous thrill. Twig snap from behind a tree, the long lens. Anyway, mm -hmm. you can do anything with these. You can do ekphrastic poetry. You can do memories. You can do fairy tale, whatever. So this is a really fun form to, to play with. Oh, these are great. Thank you, Barbara. Thank you. Uh, I have one last question for you. And this is uh, the question that I ask all my guests who teach creative writing or creative writing workshops. And that is, what is the most important thing you teach your students if you want them to remember one thing from your workshop or class? What is it? Gosh, one thing. Well, I'm an associate editor of an online poetry journal. And the one thing that I've done a workshop on this and that I really look for in a poem is the first and last lines. You know, if you're going to write a poem and revise it, what is the, where does the poem start and how does it, how does it end? Does it close? Does it open? So critical. And if that first line and last line are, if the first line is a lot of throat clearing and setting the stage, I am not engaged. And if the last line is a throwaway, like a summation, I am not engaged. I am so I'm I'm very picky about first line and last line. And I have done a workshop in just that, and I have another one coming up in um uh da, 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 May on writing and you know, scaffolding the poem, the first line and the last line. And I think it's really critical. And I always look for that one, whether I'm reading W.S. Merwin or you know, a student, um, a student's work, I always look at how how does it begin, where does it begin, why there. And how does it end? Does it resonate? And do I remember it after I've read it? Do I want to read it again? Thank you. Thank you, Barbara. And good luck with all your projects. Good to see you today. Thank you, Katerina, so much.